Hello, gentle listener. No, I'm not doing that, actually. Um, it's it's me, it's Ethan, and we're here with Michael. With Michael, also. Hi, Michael. Say hi. Hello, hello, hello. Nope. Um, what told this then? Nope. Uh, it's Michael and Ethan in a room. With, like I know I started it, but also no. Um, it's Michael. Well, and then, Ethan then a... you abandoned it, so I had to pick it up. <laughs> That's not no. Um, it's Michael and Ethan in a room with scotch. We're in a room. There's scotch in it. Michael, we're drinking uh, scotch that I pronounced correctly last episode, and I forgot. How I said it, and I'm just going to read it off the box. Akintoshin. Akintoshin. Who was also a controversial pharaoh in ancient Egypt. Um, (laughs) Controversial in the sense of, did he exist or not? (laughs) That, I think, I don't know. I just read a book that was about that, and then I forgot everything I read in it. So, um, (laughs) what a great story, huh? Yeah, hi. That was good. Uh, that was good. Yep. We're here. We're going to drink Akhenaten <laughs> scotch. Um, and <laughs> let's do that. Well, let's let's pour that, I guess, while my wife reads the rules of the podcast. Hey, wife. Rule one. Once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink, the scotch must not be mentioned at any time. If anyone mentions it, they lose. Rule two. No one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed. If any mothers are mentioned, the mentioner loses. Rule 3. Ethan must never say the phrase, first paragraph. If he does, he loses. Rule 4. Michael must never say the words, vampire, vampiric, or any derivative thereof. If he does, he loses. Rule 5. If anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so because this podcast is anti-UTI. Rule number 6. The wives are entitled to one glass of scotch or some equivalent beverage. Rule number 7. If four scotch-centric episodes pass with no losses, then everyone loses. And what happens if someone breaks the rules? If one person breaks a rule, they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule. All that being said, everyone, drink responsibly. Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, Michael. Gentle Gentle listener. listener. Thank you, dear. Thank you, wife. We are continuing to discuss Convenience Store Woman, a novel by Sayaka Murata. Uh, A pronunciation I am not at all confident in, but which we're going with. Um, We accept this. Yes. So, uh, Michael, I want to kick off our discussion by reading one of my favorite passages from this book. Oh, goody. Uh, if you have a favorite passage, by the way, feel free to, like, 
you know, think about that and save it at some point. Um, if you don't, that's also fine. Hmm. But, uh, I'm going to read one paragraph and then do a brief comment and then read a second paragraph and then invite you to comment on any of that. So, okay. possibly my favorite, like, just on, like, a prose level, and so this is, of course, to do with both the writer and the translator mm. into English, but possibly my favorite passage starts, um, it's, it's the last, it's the, the beginning of the paragraph starts at the bottom of page 65. I am going to okay. read the paragraph before that first. Um... Actually, I'm just going to read the last sentence of that paragraph. Uh, she says, mm. the narrator says, Before I knew what I was doing, I looked Shiraha in the face. Um, I think that that's maybe significant in light of our discussion of this narrator potentially being autistic. And, mm. you know, again, it's it's ambiguous. It's I mean, it's, it's oh, not that yeah. ambiguous, but it's a, ambiguous in the sense of... Uh, it's never named explicitly. It's not explicit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> everyone on the internet that I googled last time had to acknowledge before they talked about the narrator, be narrator being autistic that it wasn't explicit, and so they were extrapolating, and I trust them more than me. But right. anyway, um, from what I understand uh, from autistic people I've known, like looking someone in the face or in the eyes uh, mm -hmm. is often a, a an uncomfortable experience like in in a very deep deeply uncomfortable way um you know how uncomfortable experiences mm -hmm. are sometimes deeply uncomfortable <clears throat> anyway so i think that might be significant um that it and it appears of mm. course more significant on rereading it after knowing where everything goes sure uh but this is just the paragraph that i really just loved and I'm not even sure I can fully articulate why, but uh, sure. uh, I find the shape of people's eyes particularly interesting when they're being condescending. I see a wariness or a fear of being contradicted or sometimes a belligerent spark ready to jump on any attack. And if they're unaware of being condescending, their glazed over eyeballs are steeped in a fluid mix of ecstasy and a sense of superiority. Uh, and and this is a bad and vague question, Michael. But like, does anything jump out at you from that paragraph, or did you note that paragraph particularly, or do you have any comment on it? And if the answer is no, that's fine. We can move on. Sure. Well, I I definitely remember that paragraph. Uh, and the I, I, the it it is striking that. There, she's reading into, and I think correctly analyzing human nature in this, that there's that fear of being contradicted um, or belligerent spark, you know, that's, that's ready. Um, but then the, the, that some are even unaware of being condesc condescending and they're just glazed over. That, I mean, like, all of that is, is really, really interesting that she's analyzing eyes and humans and seeing it that way. Um but I do want to back up just a little bit too on what you noted about 
the the key of her looking Shiraha in the face mm-hmm. because the paragraph right before that is where she's considering this idea of looking people in the eyes um, and like very consciously doing so because it says when you work in a convenience store people often look down on you for working there i find this fascinating and i like to look them in the face when they do this to me and as i do so i always think that's what a human is yeah um that's a great paragraph too just that 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 statement of like that's what a human is i think she's talking about someone who looks someone in the eyes right like Mm. that's what people do and so like if if she is truly autistic um, and like would have a natural uh, sort of resistance to looking someone in the eyes, like being conscious of like, this is what people do. We look people in the eyes. That's like how she's talking herself into that. Of course, I don't know. Uh, the translation question is always going to bug me, but um, that's that's at least what I'm reading in the English here yeah um but like the fact that she's ramping up to looking someone in the eyes and like she sees it as important to do that when people are looking down on convenience store workers that that's the key and then that's that's what develops into the paragraph you read that when they're being condescending that's where the shape of their eyes is interesting that's where like you can see this conflicting nature uh in the human beings and it's all wrapped up in the question of what is a human being which like Mm -hmm. she's thinking that's what a human is and there's multiple meanings to that now because what is a human being a human being is a ball of contradiction um someone who is condescending to someone else worried about being contradicted ready to fight about being contradicted or just not even knowing that they're being contradicting uh or being condescending and and could be contradicted um and then you get to shiraha too in the in the very next paragraph after the one you read where she looked into shiraha's eyes there i saw only prejudice in its simplest form and so like where does that fit in kind of the three categories she mentioned there like the wariness or fear uh, of being contradicted the belligerent spark ready to fight uh or uh, unaware of being condescending like it could fit in any of those i think um i i i don't know if if she clarifies it at all necessarily that mm-hmm. <laughs> um she she does uh talk about the conflict later on that like there are some who have the the deep-seated prejudice and some who just repeat what they've heard um in terms of prejudice without really thinking about it um so like which one is shiraha she says it sounds like he's the one who just repeats what he heard which makes him kind of a kindred spirit to her that he's just imitating um and he's just soaking in what he's gotten from others and that's his personality sure um but like i um, I, I, I think there's a lot going on here is kind of my short yeah. answer <laughs> <laughs> no, I think so. Um, I, both before and more so after your answer to my question, I had like a bunch of close reading things from both the paragraphs I pointed out and, and sort of some of the ones that you expanded us to both before and after. Um, so uh, the first one that occurred to me uh, that almost like I thought was what you were going to say, and then you went a different direction with it, which is obviously fine and great. Mm, but yeah, um, the first one that jumped out at me, so that that paragraph when you work in a convenience store, 
people often look down on you for working there. I find this fascinating, and I like to look them in the face when they do this to me. So, and again, you know, we can wonder about translation and, and how, how much colloquialism yeah. happens. But, like, at least in the English, um, when you work in a convenience store, people often look down on you. That's a colloquial expression. That's like a... Um, that's like a metaphor. Oh, yeah. And then you jump to when, basically, when people do this, I like to look them in the face. That's like a, a realist sensory detail. And so you've set up this, like, mm-hmm. almost ambiguity. It, it almost feels like Don Quixote-ish or something of, um, <laughs> like, jumping between, like, a colloquial expression, but then, like, taking it literally... So you've set up this like imaginary person, this metaphorical person um, who she's then in the prose, at least reacting to as if they're a literal person. This person is taller than mm. her. They're literally looking down on yeah. her is the only way that like she can be, quote, looking them in the face. Or at least that's the implication. Maybe, you know, maybe the physics aren't. Right aren't a hundred percent but um and then she well, says like think about it that's... if it were filmed like if if this were filmed i could see like some directors doing exactly that like someone is looking down on her and like you with like the aspect like you change the the perspective on it to make her look smaller like you're looking from yeah. above but then she looks straight up into the camera right like <laughs> right exactly yeah that's and that's the I, set I, of like, images yeah. that get called to mind um yeah. And then she says, as I do so, I always think that's what a human is. So, like, she's looking into mm-hmm. the face of a metaphor, even though mm-hmm. potentially, and I, I want to be careful because, like, the, mm. this isn't in the text, potentially she's someone who doesn't really understand metaphor or to whom metaphor is at least right. confusing. Um, you know, again, maybe that's that's reading yeah. a little bit too far into it, but... Um, but then you also have like a parallel construction there with her, you know, looking them in the face, the theoretical metaphorical person in that paragraph. And then in the next paragraph, before I knew I, what I was doing, I looked Shiraha in the face. So there's like a parallel between the two paragraphs there. Mm-hmm. It's almost, um, you know, it's almost a similar device to like rhyming in poetry. The, the meanings rhyme, not necessarily the, oh, sure. the words or the sounds. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so in the paragraph that I highlighted, this this one that uh, starts on sixty five and goes to sixty six, um, I like again really drilling into the prose, and not just like the prose, but like the technique going on. Um, there's some really interesting stuff happening because for this sort of passage, the sort of like fiction writing one hundred and one instruction that you often get especially if you're doing like realist fiction is that you want to include sensory details if you're describing two people looking Mm. each other in the eyes you want to include like realist details like a a freckle on their their cheek or a you know how their eyelash dangles or something and what Murata Mm -hmm. does uh here is basically the opposite of that like while Mm -hmm. still including 
sensory details that your mind can hook onto to sort of see in its imagination, see what's going on in this passage. Um, uh, so I, I see a wariness or a fear of being contradicted or sometimes a belligerent spark ready to jump on any attack. Other than the mm-hmm. word spark, there's nothing physical, like nothing fi- visually yeah. available to see. And even the word spark is being used as a metaphor. And if they're unaware of right. being condescending, their glazed over eyeballs are steeped. And and so again, I want to stop there. Glazed over eyeballs is an expression that we all get, but like we don't have lizard eyes that like literally have like a transparent film. <laughs> you know, so even glazed over eyeballs is a it's is just a, no, it's just Ethan, Ethan, it just means eyes that are rubbed in on a Krispy Kreme donut. Oh yeah, sorry. Uh I mean, that is what it would mean in America, but, like, um, <laughs> they don't have glazed donuts in Japan. I didn't, I'm not sure if you were aware of that. Oh, I did, I didn't know that. I assumed that they were on a rack somewhere in the convenience store. But... Uh, no, they have other stuff on a rack, much better stuff, as I've said. Um, <laughs> and now I am just being the, the person who spent a semester abroad and thinks that everything is better in Europe or whatever. Um, anyway, <laughs> their glazed over eyeballs are steeped in a fluid mix of ecstasy and a sense of superiority. Now, if we get too far into the phrase fluid mix, we could get to some pretty gross, gross places that is not appropriate for a family-friendly podcast like ours. Um, <laughs> but I just want to say that, like... Steeped. What's that? Tea. Steeped. It's tea. Yes, thank you. Um, like, yeah, It's a, a Krispy Kreme donut thrown into a cup of tea. Yep, that's what that metaphor is. Um, and all I had to say about that <laughs> is that, like... Ecstasy and a sense of superiority are not something anything can be steeped in. Like, this passage is so metaphorical, and, you know, Mm -hmm. you can get, again, lost in the weeds, chasing your tail, two very similar metaphors, don't worry about it, but over the idea that, like, (laughs) um, of the, like, author's voice versus the narrator's voice you know and and so forth but like it's just a really interesting passage especially to then almost have a have a button put on it by saying i looked into shiraha's eyes there i saw only prejudice in its simplest form um again you can't Mm -hmm. see prejudice like what is actually happening here yeah um is is more of like and if if you right she's a, inferring a lot yeah she's inferring a lot and she's claiming that she can see visually things that don't have a visual form and if or right. if they do she's certainly not giving them a visual form she's just telling us i guess that's what I, part of what i'm saying here is like mm-hmm. this is a classic example of telling instead of showing that I think right. is far better and more skillful than if you had tried to show it. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Um, yeah. Th- th- this is one of those examples of like breaking the rule when you know the rule <laughs> and like in-, in a skillful, skillful way. The, mm. um, I-, I would not necessarily show this 
to if I were teaching a class on creative writing, I would not necessarily show this passage to that class unless I had a lot of examples of them trying to do the telling instead of showing because they're like, well, we know the rule of show, don't tell. And so therefore we can break it. And I'd say, no, you're you're not uh, <laughs> you're not Sayaka Murata. So you don't know it that well. Right. Uh, <laughs> um, so let me show you how it's done um, sort of thing. It actually reminds me also include actually with what you just said specifically reminded me also of um, an essay I wrote that maybe I'll find and link to because I can't remember the name or anything else off the top that would get you back to it, except that it was by Brandon Taylor, who wrote um, the short story collection Filthy Animals that we did on this podcast. But mm-hmm. it was it was on his Substack, um, and I think it was like the text of a lecture he had given as like a guest speaker. Um, but part of the lecture he was talking about uh um exposition he was talking about exposition and basically mm, mm-hmm. if i understood it correctly like the thesis statement of the lecture was essentially that it was exposition and something else anyway i'll link to it so everyone hopefully if they're interested will have a much better and clearer idea than i will be able to articulate but part of Part of the the, um, thesis was like exposition is, in a novel specifically, uh, exposition is the novel sort of telling you what it's about. Like it's it's a straight line Mm. to the id of the novel or like the subconscious of the novel where um, the -hmm. novel just sort of stops pretending and just tells you what it's about. And I think part of the reason that I that I really fixated on this passage even even before having read the rest of the the book um is that this feel felt like a really clear example of that which mm. me saying that in my mind at least is like a in you know different words is the same as as your remark about showing this to a creative writing class like that's that's sort of sure where where I went with it um yeah very good anything else you wanted to say about this passage or sort of this discussion subsection before i move on uh no i like i i think the the ambiguity that's that's covered here and the the it's almost so this is something that i think murata is doing in general throughout the whole book is like even within this, like um, this, this discussion of Keiko as possibly being autistic, uh, almost explicitly, almost explicitly, almost very clearly being autistic, but then in here having a mastery of metaphor in a way, um, like where she undermines the expectations, she undermines what you know to be true. I think she's doing that a lot throughout this whole book. Um, some of it comes through what you touched on with that repetition, um, like the, the poetry of meaning um, the, or the rhyme of meaning. Um, like there, There's a lot of repetition throughout the book, and I didn't mark every occasion of it, but I would notice where like almost a full paragraph seemed to be a repetition of a previous paragraph. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, the, the knee jerk would be to... S- look at that with a really brief editor's view and say, well, you should cut this paragraph. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but I think I, with I, I think Murata is is smarter than that. I think she's doing mm-hmm. that intentionally, um, having those repetitions there for probably precisely that purpose, perhaps among others, of creating rules and expectations, but then complicating them and undermining them. Um, and that that I think is is key to the whole aspect here. So on on the cover of my book, it's got like the the pull quote from the New Yorker that says a celebration of nonconformity that is both joyous and unsettling, which I think is mm-hmm. simplistic um, because I don't think the book is necessarily about nonconformity, but nonconformity certainly plays a role. Um, yeah, well, in terms of what is what does yeah. it mean to conform, um, and like is it celebrating nonconformity uh, or is it exploring nonconformity <laughs> yeah uh, or was... exploring the interplay of conformity and nonconformity that's what i was trying um, to say is that like glib pull quotes like this often really just assert very confidently a incredibly debatable interpretation of the book like mm-hmm if someone were to bring, if it to if say you for example brought to our discussion the assertion this book is a celebration of nonconformity, I would respect that assertion and um, be happy sure. to be in conversation with it. But yes, it's it's definitely a an assertion rather than just like a self evident truth. Right. Exactly. Um... So that I think is what's going on with this this idea of the the metaphor versus the literal and the the conflict slash synergy between them, which yeah. is what's going on right there, pages sixty five to sixty six. Yeah, and even um, slightly. Yeah, is a, yo, I mean it's all over, but like what yeah. you've highlighted and what we've we've discussed so far is yeah. is highlighting that for sure. Um, just briefly, when you talked about, uh, you know, passage or like paragraphs that, that seem almost like repetitions. Um, I don't remember specifically like page numbers, but there were definitely places where I would get to a paragraph and I'd be like, wait, this seems really familiar. Did I read, like, did I read this last night and Mm -hmm. forget? And like, and then I'd have to flip back. I'd be like, no, this was wait. And then, you know, I'd get to a paragraph or I'd be flipping forward and, get to a paragraph and be like, wait, I just read this, but I thought I was later in this book. Like it confused my sense of where in the book I was occasionally. <laughs> um, sure. And again, like you said, I think sure. that that's for, first of all, uh, one benefit of a short novel like this is that it encourages you to have greater faith that things like that are intentional because, you know, if you have a really long, Oh, absolutely. Novel, does it sometimes that's fine and and it works and it's intentional but like with a novel that's the short it's like well uh, there's an economy of the words yeah and and so that you know that any repetitions are part of that economy and are intentional um even if you don't and that's that's if go ahead if i read this again that's what i'm going to pay attention to is like trying to pay attention to those, those the repetitions and and note them and note what changes in between or what's emphasized by the repetition. Um, yeah, that's that's what I would pay attention to sure. next. Um, but for sure, if there's nothing else you want to sort of explore specifically about this, 
I have one other major thing I want to get to, uh, besides whatever, you know, it, it, sure. I have at least one other major thing. I'll put it that way. Okay. I, I, I have at least one topic I want to discuss, but it's a separate one. So I'm going to let you go ahead as the host. Sure. And, um, and yeah, we'll make sure to, us on. to save time or you just kind of say, um, but the only, yeah. the specific <laughs> other thing I want to get to is the character of Shiraha. Um, thank you. <laughs> was that yours or was it something else? No, it's not. Okay. I was hoping that you would touch on that because if we didn't talk about him, we would need to. Yes. <laughs> um, and specifically, like, I, there's a lot of things about him that we could bring up. And if you want to bring up anything about him, um, whether I touch on it or not, please feel free specifically the thing that i am most interested in is that he has his own i touched on i think last episode this idea of like um some of these metaphors or like sets of imagery that like obtain Mm. in different places throughout the novel so like you have this 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 image of the human body as like a self-regulated system you have this image of um or image or set of images like depending on your definitions it could be either one but of um uh then human bodies as cogs in a machine instead of human bodies or in addition mm-hmm. or whatever um yep. shiraha has this set of images specifically associated with him and mostly in dialogue as far as i can tell without with only having read this novel once um this set mm. of images about like what primal man or primal mm-hmm. humankind, how we were meant to live, how we did live, um, how we do live. And I think that objectively speaking, in terms of like what actual evidence we have from experts and people who study this, most or all of those are objectively wrong. Um, <laughs> and I don't know whether that matters, but, um, and, and whether that matters in like a bunch of different possible definitions of the phrase, I don't know whether that matters, but, mm-hmm. um, but I still do think that they're objectively wrong. And I guess again, Michael, like, that's my question. And by that, I mean, like, what what do you got for me like, on this topic or anything related to Shiraha? Well, I just, I, like, Shiraha is such an unsavory character. <laughs> yes. Can I say yeah. that simply? Like, his, his hygiene is brought up multiple mm-hmm. times and, and, like, how disgusting he is. Um and then, like, the way he talks about the Stone Age and the way we used to be with such authority, um, as though he knows all of this very clearly and can speak authoritatively on it, even while he's applying for a job at a convenience store, uh, which is which is a, an irony that uh, Keiko picks up on and points out, like, why are you applying here if you think that everyone who works here is below beneath you and he's like well to find a woman because i'm a i'm a caveman and i need to find where the women are um 
Like, it strikes me, I don't want to open this can of worms, as similar to the incel <laughs> culture. Yeah. Um, that, but, uh, it, it, it's, it's similar there too because he is so disgusted by Keiko. We never get, so this is something too, we never get really a good physical description of Keiko, which the book is written in first first person from her perspective. So we don't get what she looks like explicitly at all. We're, we're left with this just generic picture of, of who she is. But clearly, Shiraha is disgusted by her. He says it multiple times. Yeah. Like, no one would breed with you. you right. Know, <laughs> that I mean, sort of thing. And to be fair, um, like, one very available interpretation of that is literally just the fact that she's 36. Um, like, right. I think it's perfectly And valid that's brought up, for that, sure. Uh, Shiraha's take there easily, easily could be purely predicated on the fact that she's 36. Would not matter if she, you know, looked like a, a, you know, model or a beautiful actress or anything like that. Like, the fact that she's 36 because of Shiraha's sort of cultural or personal preconceptions, like... Like, none of that would matter if it were true. He would still think she was disgusting. I think that is a valid and available interpretation. I don't think it's the only one, but yeah. I don't think it's sufficient either because um, he doth protest too much, methinks. Um, because of how often, going back to the repetition piece, mm. how often he says it, and like how often. It, he even terms it in like these sexually explicit ways where like he talks about how she looks and is like, Oh, I'm getting flaccid just looking at you. Like, <laughs> that, like that's that I, I'm not exaggerating that either. Like that's, that's what he says. And it's so, so much and so all over the place that like, I want to, as the reader with no other evidence besides what he says, because no one ever else comments on her appearance. Others comment on her age uh, but no one else comments on her appearance. So as the reader, I want to swing the opposite direction and picture her as like this paragon of beauty. Mm. Um, even though like I have no evidence besides the negative of Shiraha. Um, so there's there's that like that that whole part of his personality. But like so it, it's it's a question of like what are his options really? You know. <laughs> mm. um, can can he afford to be choosy if if we want to i don't even like putting that whole dynamic on this but like it's it's i think part of the irony and contradiction of his character which this book being steeped in so many contradictions uh that's that's one that's that's there for sure that he feels entitled and sees himself as being cheated out of what he's entitled to being related to this idea of the incel culture and ultimately coming down to what, because we do have a kind of clear picture of what he looks like and how he behaves and multiple perspectives on him and how he comfortably winds up living in a bathtub <laughs> 
for days on end. Which, like, it, it's so... What does he have going for right. him? Um, just the the bathtub thing is is like it's almost like Samuel Beckett ish. Like it feels it makes him feel like a character mm. from like an absurdist Beckett play, and you know, yeah, uh, uh, Sayaka Murata, you know, clearly very intelligent, clearly very um, mm-hmm. articulate. You know, I. I I don't know anything about like what education or cultural references she has. So I don't want to claim like, Oh yeah, she's clearly read Beckett, but like, um, he almost turns into, I'm trying to remember the, the name of the Beckett play. There's a Beckett play where it's like, Mm. um, one of the characters is, is more or less, uh, Oscar the grouch, like, a character that lives in a garbage can is a puppet and like pops up to make cranky pronouncements periodically. Um, at least that's how I've seen it staged. Uh, end game. No, it's mm, maybe again, just out of a really quick Google search of Beckett character lives in garbage. End game. Okay. Pops up. It might be end game. <laughs> so yeah, that's yeah. Uh, I'll I'll try to research it, but better and and the like point put it in the show notes. Sands, yeah, like I don't know. It's like, I mean, this book borders absurdism in some ways. I don't know. It's yeah. He he just like I don't know. It's I feel like I had a point, but I've lost it. Um, partly I've lost it because I the mm. the other point I want to make is just like. In, I don't know, you could envision this book as having two acts, three acts, or five acts, I think. And in whatever, like, the third to fifth act, depending on how you define it, or the, even the sec- the second half, um, it becomes partially this, like, thing that I think Absurdist Theater was also, you know, maybe uh, uh, orbiting around... This idea that the external life and the internal life of a couple can be vastly different and that a couple even that fits in... First of all, the there's the idea that a couple is a society. And I think that that's potentially mm-hmm. a way to look at this book. Again, I'm, you know, I'm doing our thing where I'm like briefly tossing out what could be 20-page term papers. So like grad students get on this. But, um, you know, the idea that a couple is a society, that a society can be absurd, and that, like, a couple as a society can act to an outer world, to a, to a world of, like, a greater society very normally, quote-unquote, a very loaded term that, you know, you could define any number of ways, <laughs> um, that internally is absurd, like... You know, mm-hmm. Kiko and, and Shiraha, when Kiko's sister visits, have to go to just literally absurd lengths to justify why Shiraha was, like, in the bathtub and, like, these things to, like, look mm-hmm. normal. Um, yep. And then and then behind, behind the scenes that we get to see in as part of the privilege of being the audience of a novel, like, mm-hmm. are, like, absurd. Like there's, I don't, 
I can't mm-hmm. think of a better word for it, frankly. No, they, absurd is good because, yeah, it, it goes totally contrary to reason or nature or thought, but is somehow true nevertheless. I, I, yeah, <laughs> and I want to say that, like, nature is a very loaded term here, especially... That, yeah, that's loaded, loaded for sure. Um, and his conceptions of nature, which, you know, don't line up, I think, either with scientists of or scientists or or historians or archaeologists or whatever of the stone age or with human experience um and again mm. those are those are very loaded assertions that i'm making that i don't necessarily want to take the time to unpack um partly michael mm-hmm. because you said you had one thing you wanted to discuss and i want to like give us time to do that well, sure. It's it's a little bit related to Shiraha because of the resolution of the book. Um, so Shiraha appears on the last page of the book, um, but he vanishes. He just walks away uh, and and is gone. Um, he he doesn't change. Um, he accuses Keiko of of being stuck herself. She'll regret it, uh, he says. You'll regret this, mark my words. And then he walks away. Those are his last words. Um, because he's been using her. He wants her to, to support him. So, you know, uh, and move up. So he's got a very pragmatic sort of view of um, what her position should be in conformity to the world. Um, you know, this world that exterminates foreign objects. Um, he has a very specific and pragmatic view of what that means and pragmatic to himself as the solipsist of the novel. Yes. Um, and, uh, be- when she, um, the-, the irony here and the contradiction that comes to play here is that when she does not conform to his view of what she should be for his world. He, as his world, eliminates her from his world, but we find that he is eliminated from this world, from her world. He's gone and her world is unchanged. It doesn't it, like it, it's, it's better for his lack, but um, ultimately there's, there's no significant interruption. She winds up more or less at the end uh, we can assume, sort of, that she winds up at the end where she started. Mm-hmm. Um, so when he's eliminated from her world, going back to the start of the book, the the convenience store being a world of sound, her world, um, when her world eliminates Shiraha as the foreign object, it gets back to normalcy. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's this turning things on its head and, and, and everything. But I do want to think about that resolution in a in a larger sense too, because it comes when she finds herself in a convenience store is um because she's quit her job at the convenience store and now she's looking for a new, like a grown up job, uh, with heavy air quotes. Um and is is gonna go uh, apply for that. But she she's enchanted by the sounds of the convenience store and those come come back which which draws us back to the start of the novel again um 
And there she goes in and she starts seeing, like, this is what the convenience store wants. It wants me to arrange things this way because this is what will attract customers. This is what will be bought. Uh, this is on sale. So this needs to be highlighted and all these different things. And so she's arranging things. And like magic, um, like, she she shows her mastery that we got hints of earlier on. And, like, we saw. We knew how smart she was, how good she was at convenience storing um, earlier on. But now, like, we see... That, that she arranges stuff and it like shoots off magically. Um, but while she's doing that, the convenience store workers that she's around are like, what is she doing? What's going on? Why is she here? Why is she messing up our store until they see the results? And I want to draw your attention back to page 58 um, in the novel um, because she came into work one day um and everyone was tense, and then she realized that they were all looking at this mid middle-aged man in a shabby suit, who was, it says, he was walking around the store talking to various customers. I strained my ears to hear what he was saying, and he appeared to be telling them off. Hey, you there, stop making the floor dirty, he said shrilly to a man with dirty shoes, and then to a woman pursuing the perusing the chocolates. Oi, stop messing up the display. Everyone was watching him, nervously afraid he might pick on them next. So here is, like, for the, the world of the convenience store, another sort of foreign object, but he seems to be coming in and trying to take control of the convenience store just the same way she does at the end, where she comes in as a foreign object to the convenience store starts taking control but ultimately proves to be of benefit to the convenience store um and i don't want to say like ends justify the means i don't think that's the moral at all um but rather i think it's it's about finding the place it's about finding where one fits where the cog actually applies and like this middle-aged man in the shabby suit comes in and, like, tries to shove this his cog into this world, but it's just grinding and, and not actually jiving. She shoves her cog into the convenience store at the end, um, and there's objection as everything shifts, but then it fits, mm -hmm. and it spins con very well. And, and um, so, I, I, like, so th this character um, of the middle-aged man in the shabby suit appears here and disappears. We never see him again. Um, I think we're left to to get the impression that he is in a similar place as Keiko, where perhaps he doesn't know where he belongs in the world, similar to the way she does, and he somehow feels somewhat at home in a convenience store in this way, that like maybe he was a manager of, of things in, in some sense, but lost his job for one reason or another and hasn't found where the world talks to him the way it talks to Keiko um, and is trying to, to recover that. But um, I think it it's left as just an impression without necessarily a moral there, but we get the echo of it in Keiko at the end. I don't know. I, the only thing I object to in anything you just said, and I don't even object to it inherently, yes. I just think that it, you gave a very generous interpretation to uh, the the man on page 58. Um, yes. I, I don't think it's it's inherently wrong. I, I think that as someone who's uh, maybe been in... Uh, been to Japan. No, that, not even that, actually. Uh, for, one, for once. I'm making fun of you. I know. I, what else is new? Um... No, but specifically as someone who's been in 
public facing positions of a similar sort to a convenience store worker mm. um maybe more recently and more longer than you um and that doesn't make more my longer in- yes yes more longer a real phrase uh, <laughs> uh don't question it um i uh, and that doesn't make my interpretation more accurate it just makes it different and less charitable potentially but like my impression of him from that perspective was that he's just he's like a a corporate person like like someone who's a boss in a corporate office Mm. who is just used to being able to boss people around with impunity um sure it still goes to your interpretation of he's a foreign object in this setting but there's maybe a more ironic uh, a take on it where you know he's he's a representation in this in this reading he's a representation of like what kiko and the other convenience store employees should aspire to but in this setting he is a foreign object and he mm-hmm. gets to be and needs to be expelled mm-hmm. um and again the the reason sure. i invoke my own experience there is that like i've experienced plenty of people in public pacing positions and service positions who think that they're a better than everyone who works at a given establishment and b because they're so used to being in authority over people they think that any time that they issue an order it's inherently correct and should be listened to um and that said i will say it is a deep potentially schadenfreude-esque and sinful pleasure but a pleasure nevertheless of my life to defy those sorts of people and you know make it clear to them that they are not a cog in my machine but rather a foreign object that needs to be expelled or at least ignored Mm. um yeah yeah fair um i guess so my uh interpretation of him was kind of riding on the the phrase shabby suit sure that like it seems like it's worn and like he he hasn't found where he fully belongs um again this might go to translation a little bit too but like it could be that it's just a suit that just doesn't fit him very well and he is that executive type well um i think that um to me shabby suit in this context still jives with everything that i said about his background just like maybe the thing that prompted him to behave in this way is that he lost his like white collar job and so he's trying to reassert some sort of oh sure sense of control dominance um authority whatever in bossing around these convenience store people that he has no authority to boss around so it's like it's it's the same thing but like sure the shabby suit doesn't like to me problematize that interpretation okay. too much but again i think no. yours is also perfectly yeah valid. sorry nat so here's here's where i think the the difference comes between him and keiko at the end is he's bossing people around she's just working um yeah he he comes in and, and tells people what to do to fix things she just goes in and fixes things um and that's 
besides, you know, I, 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 like I said, I don't want to go to ends justify the means where like what she does works, what he does doesn't. Instead, I want to look at what their means are because their means are different. Um, he's bossing. She's working. She just fixes things. She goes in and, and arranges stuff uh, and does so masterfully. She's good at it. She she can do this. Uh, him bossing people around, it doesn't work. He can't do that. I don't think it's and justify the means so much as it's um, where right. authority actually comes from. And mm, there's mm-hmm. maybe an exposure here. And again, this goes back to even some of our Marxist uh, remarks this episode and last episode. But there's an exposure of where authority actually comes from because his authority... If my interpretation is correct, at least, his authority is very um, structural and, like, derived from his appointment as boss or manager or whatever, mm-hmm. and he's now lost it and is trying to reassert it, whereas her authority yeah. comes from just the fact that she is um, competent and that you know, it's a psychologically speaking, people tend to respond better to authority that like to or to leadership really that is competent at the thing that they're leading in or that it's leading in versus mm. leadership that's just appointed top down by some sort of hierarchy. Whether the hierarchy is valid or not, um what people respond to better is when a supposed figure of authority um is competent and in like it's like the leading from the front idea right like the authority figure is yeah. an authority because they're good they're the best at or they're better at or they're good at the thing that they're leading fair I, I wonder, though, if it's less about her competency, which is certainly a factor, but more about her um, relationship to the work um, that we haven't talked about the, the essay at the back, mm-hmm. um, the the Dear Convenience Store essay by the author. Yeah, but which I'm glad you mentioned because I, I had seems like hoped to talk about it uh, but but i'm glad it at least got mentioned it, it needs to get at least mentioned but like the relationship that, and that whole essay is about a relationship between a worker and the convenience store and that i think is key to keiko's personality where everyone wants her to have a relationship everyone wants her to you know get married have kids advance in some way um but she's can't do that because she has this relationship with the convenience store that's that's where her relationship is and it's the communication that she has with the convenience store she can can communicate more clearly with this building this edifice this this thing than with people um and that that lends her a certain competency but i think the competency is just as much an effect um as the the result uh of customers buying things it's it's a result of her connection to the store her ability to understand it um 
which I mean, you could you could maybe say that is her competency, but it since it's it's spoken of in such relational terms, I think there's more to it there than than a competency. I think it's it's it, there's an identity, there's a, there's a, a connection that she's she's finding and feeling there. Um, that's that's beyond the ability, the the pragmatic abilities um, of creating the results um, and what she's good at. It's it's about the what she's talking, who she's talking to, and and who she can understand. Uh. What I would like to assert is that uh, what you just said is the same thing as what I said before it in very different words. That's fair. Um, and I think that if we had more time and it was interesting to you, me, or the gentle listener, like we could parse it out and maybe <laughs> you know, um maybe some things would be the same and some things wouldn't and that's fine like i don't want to try to just sure. like subsume everything you said under my thing um but i i think that in a lot of the ways that are sort of important and functional like that this last couple of sets of remarks was us saying either the same or very similar things in pretty different words um and that's fine you know that's obviously like uh i can accept that yeah uh you know saying the same thing in different in very different words is like a function of literature um you know so yeah right and i think again like kind of at the core of this book too is getting to those contradictions that ultimately are the same thing (laughs) yeah um yeah and it, it, and it's not to necessarily flatten out the contradictions and the things. And there's no. like a lot of contradictions in this book that we haven't and won't be able to get to. Um, it's to say that like they can be held in ambiguity and intention, and maybe some of them can be, um, I don't know, harmonized in some way. Um, yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Michael, just looking at our time, we're getting to the end far too soon, especially sure. for a book that, like, in a fairly small page <laughs> paperback copy with an extra essay by the author, is only 172 pages long. Um, uh-huh. it's like yet another one that it's like this is small. And we could do four episodes on it, probably. Um, Yes. That said, is there anything that it would, like, break your heart not to bring up right here at the end? Man, like, other things are coming to mind as we've been talking about this. Like, I want to explore the idea of sound in here because, like... I'm sure we could find imagery of, of like a symphony coming together here. Like uh, something you said right at the end here is like, it's not flattening the differences, but like they're becoming symphonic throughout all of this. Yeah. Harmonizing. That's what you said. Like, so like, yeah, I think it, it, I think that's, that's probably something that we could find throughout all of this Um, amongst other things. It deserves another read, even just to, to keep track of the repetitions. Um, and find the contradictions within them, but 
Oh, one other thing that I did want to say, like connected to the idea of the translation and stuff. And like, there are a couple of places where it sounds awkward in translation. Like the first place I noticed was on page four where she says, thank you for your custom. Um, And it's like, no, that doesn't sound good in English, but like, maybe it sounds fine from Japanese perspective. But like, I think uh, to give the translator the benefit of the doubt, maybe they're, maybe she's keeping it sounding Japanese in a way, but but the book seems very, very Japanese in a lot of ways. Like I can see a lot of this converting easily into a manga uh, or uh, an anime um, in, in a lot of ways, just using those very Japanese media. But I don't want to talk more about that. We'll leave it at at that just assertion that it seems very Japanese. Yeah. Not eliminating the universal quality to it, but (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah i mean i have other like theories that i could float about some of those things but they would not have any more authority or um backing than uh uh just asserting that it seems very japanese this japanese novel Mm. um go figure (laughs) anything else you wanted to say michael no stop me other other than like two more hours of things yeah uh right that said uh gentle listener just a few uh things that we need to do i don't know i i have the script here and i still just like feel like i'm making it up anyway um (laughs) thank you for listening to our two-part discussion of convenience store woman by sayaka morata um it could be two more parts or seven more parts who knows but here we are um who knows before we uh do anything else um we need to rate some things uh we'll rate the scotch yes uh in a couple more episodes because we will keep drinking uh akintoshin um Mm mm-hmm uh, but we at this point should rate the book um that michael did not give away his rating already but rate the book buy borrow or forget about it michael buy it um yes buy it please um i i don't know i i haven't looked at all if uh sayaka Murata has written anything else but i intend to find out um because like like you say this is a 172 page novel and that includes the like 5 6 page um essay at the end um and yet we could talk so much about it there's so much it deserves at least one more i would say at least three more rereads um to get through everything that's going on in here. So like, I I'm glad we brought up the autism idea early on because I think that's, that's in here. Um, but it's not everything. Uh, it, it's, it, it, it could be the very easiest surface read is like, here's an autistic woman trying to find her place in the world, but there's so much more going on. Uh, it's like questioning what is a person? What is the world? What is a place? What, yeah. <laughs> like all of these things are being questioned um, and examined from multiple angles. And for that reason alone, buy this book, read it, examine it, inwardly digest it. It's it, There's so much going on. 
um buy yeah it. completely agree buy it um as you were talking i was for the first time paging through the like uh uh blurb section at the front which is like several pages long um <laughs> yes. and like <laughs> so and many. also just the number of like awards it's won uh la times bestseller mm-hmm. uh, best book of the year by the new yorker minneapolis star tribune buzzfeed globe and mail bustle wbur hudson library journal and shelf awareness like yeah um but as mm-hmm. i was paging through literary hub is credited as saying Sayaka Murata has written the 7-Eleven Madame Bovary, um, which is possibly my favorite recommendation of any book that I've seen in a long time. (laughs) Um, That's amazing. uh, Electric Literature, which I think is is an online journal, blog, whatever, that I think I've, like, read very little from, but everything I've read from them has been one of my favorite things um they say uh reading convenience store woman feels like being beamed down onto a foreign planet which (laughs) turns out to be your own may we buy out bookstore stocks of this book and yell sayaka murata's name from the rooftops (laughs) Um, uh ruth ozeki author of a tale for the time being which is like a pretty well-known book i think uh says that this book is a gift to anyone who has felt at odds with the world, which if we were being truly honest, I suspect that would be most of us. Um, I don't know. Like I shouldn't have started doing this because I'm just like quoting people, but like, uh, just read all of them. Like (laughs) I feel the way that all of these people feel about it. Like it's just so worth buying and reading and then rereading, especially because it's like such a little book. Like, you could reread it, you know, you could reread it twice, i.e. read it three times in two days if you wanted to. And, like, you probably Easily. should. Yeah. Um, like, probably. it's so good. And, I don't know. Like, I can't come up with better recommendations than these professionals that I've just quoted. So, like, that's all I'll say about that. Uh, Michael. Mm-hmm. Uh, rate the pairing between this book and Akintoshin 12-year delicate and layered single malt. Uh, perfect match, pretty good match, slight mismatch, total mismatch. Um, so th- I, this is like almost surprising to me. <laughs> I'm going to rate this a perfect match. Um, the This scotch seems so different from a lot of other scotches that I've tasted. Seems to be almost not even qualified as a scotch because of how it tastes. Um, and I can talk more about that maybe next time. But uh, it, like, it stands out as being so different. But then like as it goes, it gets complex. And it's got different shades to it that contradict and it deserves to be drunk again and again and to explore it more just like this book and i think i could i could hold the book in one hand and a glass of this akintoshin 12 in the other and contemplate the book 
for a little while and then turn and contemplate the scotch for a little while and go back and forth and the the contemplations would contemplate complement each other as i went so absolutely a perfect the contemplations would contemplate shockingly each other? perfect the contemplations would contemplate each other and complement each like other we should also have um yeah sorry matt i am going to completely agree i was already going to say perfect match um for very similar reasons if not probably the same reasons the way i thought to phrase it was this scotch seems very simple when you first sip it and then the as you let Mm -hmm. it sort of uh, rest in your mouth and as you take more sips it's like it unfolds in more and more complex ways um mm-hmm. sort of in the same way that this book does um beyond that i think michael you said uh uh anything i'm going to be able to say um yeah so yeah perfect match uh great yeah right um (laughs) gentle listener thank you for listening um just know that we will be back next time with uh the book salem's lot by stephen king please feel free to read along with us um contact us about convenience store woman salem's lot or any other uh book we've talked about now in the past or in the future i guess um mm-hmm. you can do that at tapestryradio.org in the contact section be sure to put scotch talk in the subject line um we are at room with scotch on twitter or x or whatever it's called now or by the time this show releases mm-hmm. if it still exists at room with scotch um you can go to the tapestry radio tap house on facebook request to join we'll let you in unless you have like deeply idealized and misconceived notions about the stone age um <laughs> we will do your homework for you at tapestryradio.org slash scotchcast there's a form fill it out present homework past homework future homework we won't do it well but you should still copy and paste everything we say into whatever homework it is just so we can laugh as you're hauled off to plagiarism jail a real thing that exists um if you liked Mm -hmm. this show uh check out some of our other tapestry radio uh shows including intermission our backstage audio drama podcast uh pokemon rollout our pokemon tabletop united actual play rpg podcast shakespeare in the village another literary podcast that is about shakespeare and performance and stuff um freddy goes to a podcast (laughs) about the uh freddy the pig series from a hundred years or so ago where three grown men read these children's novels um us play fiasco another real play podcast about the improv heavy rpg fiasco uh michael is there anything you want to promote or anywhere you want to be contacted no 
Excellent, thank you. Um, Till next time, (laughs) just remember, it's our party, and we'll cry because uh, Sayaka Murata made us do it. And by do it, I mean cry. She did. Thank you. We love you. Cry. Yes. Obscurantism and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. listener. Obviated objects of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From From our our fancy fancy to to yours. yours.